Hey folks, welcome back to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream 188 Q&A segment. Let's go. Let's go. So we start off with a question from the Discord every time that we do a, a Q&A here on Rumble. And the question from the Discord server this week is, which evolutionary adaptation is so rare or unlike any other ones you've seen that it seems almost impossible that it evolved here on Earth? <laughs> Um, I saw one this week that uh, I didn't see it in person, but I saw it uh, described and reported. And um, the Thresher Shark, you know the shark? Does that ring a bell? Yeah, but I, I can't quite picture it. I don't remember. The long, pull it up. pointy. Yeah, bring up a Thresher Shark. I don't have any computer. That's not. My computer's going to bounce around a little bit. And actually, if you wanted, you could go to the excellent Twitter account, Massimo, who is sort of an aggregator of amazing stuff. So first you want, you to, want me to log into Twitter? Here, put, up, put up one of those pictures of Thresher Shark with the tail. Now, of course, if you have an evolutionary bent... You will have looked at a tail like that and thought, you know, that's not just a flourish. That's for something. But what could it possibly do, right? Well, the heterocircle tail with the two different sized lobes yep. is um, often about a vertical position in the water column. Mm -hmm. um, but all sharks have, it's a bit heterocircle. It's a bit higher on top, but it's not like that. Okay, so go to Twitter and bring up Massimo okay. right here. I'm going to wait for Zach to give me my screen back. Massimo. Uh, I got it. Massimo, I'll do it. Uh, and scroll down for the Thresher Shark video. Flying squirrels. Love flying squirrels. How long do I have to... Oh, you really I don't know, someone scrolling? last week. Oh, my God. Dude. Keep, keep going. I'll, I'll tell you when you see it. Got it. Hey, Zach, you want to search Massimo for Thresher Shark? Wait, is it, what is the spelling that you're... M-A-S-S-I-M-O. Seriously, Rob? Zach, I mean, he puts out a lot of stuff. I've I been know. scrolling a long time, and I'm only seven hours ago. <laughs> um. Well... I assume it's a he. If yeah. Look yeah, it might. Okay. So anyway, um, you, <sighs> you, I would just first point out that, of course, the thresher shark tail passes what we have proposed as the adaptive test. That is a test that makes it a presumptive product of adaptive evolution by virtue of the fact that it is, of course, complex um, tissue and requires material and energies to construct i'm, I'm out i'm not doing this anymore okay tell you what search uh <laughs> I'm, I'm done i like i can do a twitter search but i like this this is a stupid waste of my time sorry no i mean you, there's a good search function on twitter but you know his name and his username aren't the same this is just a silly well place it would to be totally out. worth it in light of the question <sighs> um okay so uh, we're not both going to be I'm just going to see if I can cut the Gordian knot here. The question is about um, 
unusual adaptations, and it reminds me of a question of an end-of-year program year question that I used to give to my vertebrate evolution students, in which I gave them a number of adaptations that did, in fact, evolve on Earth. And this is, you know, this is focused on vertebrates. Um, and I, but I asked them to imagine a rerunning of vertebrate history from 500 million years ago or so um, to predict um, in what order and what likelihood each of these adaptations would be likely to to evolve and you know things that show up early and um, yeah things that show up often uh, is a different kind of importance than things that show up and never get reversed right so um, bipedality seems to be pretty useful uh, those organisms that have it um, don't tend to lose it um, that said tetrapody having four tetrapody having four limbs uh, as the earliest uh, land-dwelling vertebrates had uh, is extraordinarily useful, but there's several clades of organisms that have that have lost those four limbs. Snakes being among the most famous among them. Uh, so, you know, what what is super unusual? Um, and you know, and the question also the question asks about uh, on Earth, right? Impossible that it evolved here on Earth. So that's very specific to the conditions that we have here. Like you, there, there are some things that you might expect to have evolved, uh, to evolve elsewhere that would not necessarily show up here. Well, the thresher shark fits perfectly because what it appears to do, and there's one part of this that I wanted, I didn't know this was going to come up today. I was going to check it to make sure that it is literally accurate. Mm -hmm. But the thresher shark whips that tail. And just as a um, whip, an actual whip breaks the sound barrier, which is why it makes that cracking sound, mm -hmm. The thresher shark tail whips the water such that the water actually is reported in this Massimo thing. And he is, um, oh, here we go. Um, to it, He reports that it boils the water. This is a hunting modality. And you can see that it certainly... Um, so, Zach, you can show my screen if you want. Nope, everything's glitching. I don't know if the computer or my adapter. Oh, but nope. Can you unplug and unplug? Yep. Um, so in, in any case, that long tail is effectively an underwater whip that you can certainly see from the video that bubbles occur at the point that the thresher flicks that tail at a school of fish. Um, but anyway, I think it perfectly matches the question because if this is... But, so, and then the fish get bewildered and are more likely to get eaten? Like what? No, no. It's apparently it stuns them. So he has to hit them. I or don't no, know that he has to wave. hit them. It's a pressure wave. Huh. Um, but uh, I was pretty stunned by it because I've looked at that tail many times every and time. And you didn't I've... even get, you weren't even near the tail. Correct. Yeah. Um, I did not know that the animal was hunting with its tail. That seemed unlikely. And therefore that tail seems not only a waste, but a hazard to the animal because obviously it's a big uh, vulnerable appendage. If it's not doing something awfully important, it would be a crazy thing uh, for selection to have maintained. Yeah. But that it is a hunting adaptation, that it involves an animal swimming in a liquid that is apparently boiled by the rapid flicking of the stat. Yeah, what he says is when hunting, a thresher shark's tail moves so quickly that it lowers the pressure in front of it, causing the water to boil. Yeah. Serious reduction pressure. Yeah. Tail slaps can lash out at up to 80 kilometers per hour, and some fish hit. Some fish is hit directly in the attacks, while others are killed by the pressure wave. 
It is impressive how quickly it moves. It's pretty amazing. You wouldn't. Water is... I wouldn't. I would have. If you were telling me that such a creature, if you wrote fiction and you described such a creature, I would have said that in a fluid as heavy as water, the idea of accelerating accelerating the tail fast enough to actually drop the pressure ahead of the water and cause the emergence of the gas and the pressure wave, I would have said, no, that won't work. Um, a whip in air works because air is so much less dense than water, and therefore you can you can uh, get the flicking of the end of the whip to cross through the sound barrier, but it wouldn't work in water. So anyway, seeing this actually happen, and whatever the actual description, which I, Massimo is very good, he's not... Mm -hmm. uh, careless about these things yep. so that's probably a literal description of how we understand this to function um anyway it strikes me as a perfect answer to this question because this uh predatory animal living in this fluid that hovers uh on uh, close enough to the temperature at which it goes from liquid to gas that the animal with the flick of a tail can cause that transition. That just seems to me the perfect answer. But yeah, no, that that is that is pretty great. I guess I'm 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 stuck in. I have a lot of questions for the person asking the question. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm 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 particularly interested. One of the things that I'm particularly interested in is um, reversals that aren't exactly reversals, but you know, some some gigantic transformation happened like the advent of legs and then much later some members of the lineage are like yeah we're we're gonna go without them or same moment some remarkable uh adaptation happens the ability you know all of the things that have to change with a move onto land from water and like everything from you know just the different refractive indices of air and water that therefore your eyes have to change the different support that water gives as opposed to air and therefore having to you know change your skeletal muscular system the different obviously ways you have to breathe your respiratory structures you know all, all of these things just like everything has to change and then yeah three four five times bunch of lineages within within tetrapods are like ah, we're going back into the water and none of the none of the tetrapods fully go back like n none of them re-evolve gills right yep. um i mean you have some you have some amphibians who retain their larval gills as adults but no one among the the amniotes the reptiles including the birds and the mammals um go from yep we're using lungs and now we're going to use gills again no they're doing something else and it's not as good um but it's remarkable and i guess each one of those transformations strikes me as extraordinary and um and unlikely and it happened here on earth because there was the opportunity for it and there was the niche open uh and it's hard to know what exactly that opportunity and niche looked like at the time that those you know for instance if we're talking about whales those you know hippos like, hmm, maybe I'll just stay in the water for a little longer. Yeah, I mean, I, I see it. And, and all of those stories uh, are amazing. But I also think that just the nature of opportunities is chaotic enough that you would expect um, reversals and, you know, interesting patterns like sea otters being in many ways more aquatic than seals. Seals are more yeah. modified. Yeah. Um, but seals give birth, they come onto land, they haul out. Sea otters do not. That's yeah. pretty interesting. And that's the only of the otters that does not, I think. Yes. That there are oh, absolutely. eight, nine, ten, eleven something species of otters, and only the sea otters are entirely in the water. Yeah. So yeah. you have a nice you have weasels, 
And then you have minks that are like the onshore but often swimming version. And then you have otters, which are the often in the water but come out on land for a time. And then you have sea otters, which are the extreme version where they really don't come on land at all. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's a pretty nifty it's nice that we have all of those examples yeah. living that we can have we can see that sequence. Um, but you know, it's it's super cool. But I don't think it's surprising that you would get these trajectories through design space mm -hmm. so much. So anyway, I liked the Thresher Shark because I would have said it was impossible if you described it, and yet it exists. I think if you had told me that leafcutter ants were involved in intricate farming mm -hmm. of fungus... I would not have believed you. Yeah, that's a good one. That is that is a good one. Or that's the not uh, something that you would think breaks the laws of physics. I wouldn't expect. Yeah, I don't, the question much. doesn't ask about physics. This seems. It says, um, "What evolutionary adaptation is so rare or unlike any other ones you've seen that it seems almost impossible it evolved here on Earth?" Well, I was comparing <clears> it to the pressure shark, which that has the reaction of that seems like it would be physically impossible. Or a muscular yeah, so that that's one approach to this this question, and another is, wow, did a lot have to happen? And you know, as as it turns out, that you know that story may not be exactly as as we think, but it is true that um, the leafcutter ants are in a clade of a lot of agricultural ants, um, and they are doing the most refined, um, detailed version of of farming um, that we know of in in the ant world, and it's extraordinary. Yeah. Um, a couple other examples that I've just suddenly lost them. Uh, well, anyway, maybe they'll come up another time. All right. Let us go to Dark Horse submissions to find some questions here. Sorry, I got to turn the sort thing on. There we go. Okay. What do you guys think of the all meat diet that Jordan and Michaela Peterson follow? They say it resolved rheumatoid arthritis, depression, and withdrawal from antidepressants and anxiety medication between the two of them. Um, I think two things. One, I think you are getting a massive signal of hypernovelty, that the number of things that are somewhat destructive in the diet and that can be developmentally somewhat destructive. Let's say you had an adjuvant that caused you to become sensitive to some molecule you wouldn't have become sensitive to, but now that molecule is a very common component of your diet and it causes you to have constant inflammation, something like that. Eliminating that molecule then cures an inflammation problem even though that molecule wasn't a problem in and of itself. And so I think in the Peterson's case, they are at the very least getting the benefit from clearing a number of different influences that were causing problems. And that that is inherently a huge upgrade in their quality of life. And it's like a much worse version of what I face with wheat. So quite, quite aside, put aside for the moment what single thing they are eating. Right. The focus here is on actually this is the most extreme elimination diet that is possible and to, to to eat only one thing and retain your health because meat is a complete everything. Right. Meat, if you were going to try to eliminate, if you were sensitive to a bunch of things at random, meat yeah. is likely to be um, 
a pretty good substitute for all of those things because the meat has taken on the components of all of the things that were necessary because you and it are closely related. It contains the stuff you need. Probably not 100%, but it's as close as you're going to get. So I think there's a general hypernovelty exposure issue, which is served by a elimination diet, an extreme elimination diet. And with regard to the three, sorry, the three conditions that are listed in the question, rheumatoid arthritis, depression, and antidepressant and anxiety medication, those are themselves all hypernovel conditions or uh, responses to hypernovel conditions. Right. Now, my guess would be that the extreme nature of that diet has negative consequences of its own, that if you knew, if you had perfect information about what it was that you were sensitive to, that you could add some things back into that diet that would preserve the benefits of the elimination mm-hmm. and would add the benefits, would supplement effectively the things that are lacking in that diet. And the hard part is... What things? How do you do that? How do you, you know, do, are they supposed to spend the rest of their lives adding something back in, going back into some inflammatory cycle, taking it out, adding something else back in? Is and there... how long do you wait? Like you have, we have no idea what the latency on symptom development is for most of these things. It, and it might itself depend on what was it that you ate with the thing that caused the trigger in the first place and how long does that stay in your system and all of this. Yeah. I have information about what he's done in that regard, Okay, um, which is that, he has tried, I don't know about his daughter, but um, Peterson has tried adding back in different kinds of carbs, for example. And if he adds in any carbs at all, even if it doesn't make him sick, uh, it apparently gives him terrible cravings for carbs. So he will mm-hmm. constantly, he can't walk into a grocery store if he's had anything because he just cannot, you know, look at everything. And, and it's, well, whereas I mean, when he only has beef, when it's, I think he just does beef, salt, and water as his entire diet, he feels full, he feels nourished, and he does not have any cravings for carbs. And this is consistent with um, when we were briefly doing uh, basically a, a keto diet um, a couple years ago. And when I would, I, you know, I ran into people in the store when I was like buying prosciutto and only prosciutto, and they'd be like, I know what you're doing. I did that for a while. Um, so you end up talking to people who were doing this because it was, it, it is still, but it was certainly for a while something that a lot of people were trying. And to a person, everyone I talked to about it, and this was certainly our experience as well. Like, okay, you get used to it, and like I, I love, I love carbs, but you get used to it. And I wasn't actually craving them, but as soon as you have anything, boom, you're right there. Like you're right back there. You're thinking about them. You want them. Your yep. body wants them. And I think, you know, it's possible that overriding that can be uh you know empowering and healthy but it's also possible that your body is in a state of like oh my god i just don't have access to this there's no point in yep. torturing you but as soon as it gets the signal that it's possible to get them right it's like i need that like I, I am actually going to send you the signal if you give me any indication at all that this is available that i need that you need to give me some of that now so you know th- those two things are hard to they are to decide between they are in well, terms no, of what's true it's unclear I would like to see a signal of where the harm actually goes, because what I've heard from people, including the anecdote of, of Jordan Peterson, yeah. is that he is healthier in every possible way, cognitively, uh, physically, across the board, um, that he's simply a healthier person. Yeah, so I don't know. That's probably true, but you're you're focused on the carb thing, and maybe mm-hmm. maybe he can't have carbs. Yep. But there's a question about, you know, salt is a pretty minimal... I think, I think he has salt. salt. It's yeah, I think no, salt. salt. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. 
salt and meat. Yeah. You could add some things to that that might be beneficial that wouldn't necessarily be triggering of the same systems. And so anyway, it, 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 if I was in his shoes and I knew what they were, it might be, okay, carbs are out, but paprika, right? you know, has yeah, some, fresh herbs. Yeah, something. Yeah. And it's possible he yeah. does do that. I'm, I've heard like third hand from other people that he only does salt beef and water. So he may not be quite that strict. I don't know. I've heard the same thing. Okay. I think from him, but, okay. um, at least at one point that was true, yeah. I believe. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, most of us hopefully don't need something that extreme. And I strongly suspect that our bodies will be better with a bit more variance in the inputs. Sure. Uh, and you know, some, you know, some, some spices and herbs, which, you know, just like we've been talking about turmeric, like, you know, there are a lot of these things that actually have real benefit at, you know, as a tiny proportion of the diet. Um, <clears throat> even things like coffee um, actually have, you know, are, are good for you. Uh, I would, you know, I would seriously consider just, you know, a few kinds of berries in season, like blueberries, blackberries. Uh, and, you know, I think most of us like grain and also recognize that the lower the amount of grain in our diet, the better. Yeah. Right. So I don't think anyone who's considering whether or not Jordan and Michaela Peterson's diet is in any way sensical are going to argue that they, you know, everyone should really be eating more rice, even though there are whole cultures that are largely rice based. And, you know, when I was in Madagascar, that was all I ate because that was all that was available. Uh, and I survived, but lost a lot of weight on an all rice diet because it was only rice, uh, not intentionally. Uh, and, you know, you get people with, um, you know, big bellies and they're undernourished on, on diets like that. You know, anything more? I think we're there. Do you want me to add more? I, I just thought you were. No, I don't think I have okay. more to add. I mean, as you know, I don't follow a very strict diet, but I do eat mostly beef. And yep. so I have some degree of uh, familiarity with this, but yeah, I don't three steaks I a day and occasionally some other stuff. Yeah, occasionally some. I try to eat. I try to eat fruit when I eat other stuff, not um, complex carbs. But I mean, I don't know. You saw the stir fry I made last night. That doesn't stick to any of that very well, except yeah. that it has steak in it. So yeah. I'm not perfect about it. Yep. Is there biological reality to the seven-year itch? It would seem that the time from meeting to mating to pregnancy to birth to childhood is about seven years, producing a mostly independent, albeit still vulnerable, not helpless person. Um, yeah, I, I, my guess is the precise timing is a myth that the very approximate timing isn't, and that it mm -hmm. is part of a diabolical program in which, and, you know, Trivers covers this logic very well in, uh, in his work, but the idea that the asymmetry in the way human reproduction works between men and women. Between men and women means that a man can effectively stick a woman with the job of raising his offspring. The half of the offspring that is not hers um, is a uh, cost she has to pay, the raising of it, um, when the cost of abandoning that child is so high. And that, that 
there are various different points. The idea that a guy is going to uh, coerce some woman into bed and then not call, right? In a world, a pre-birth control world, that is an attempt to do this very, very cheaply. But there is also the point of uh, a woman who will sign up for a reproductive partnership who won't do it, uh, you know, isn't looking for a one-night stand, but is looking for a relationship that that guy might feel pressure at the point that his abandonment does not result in uh, his first offspring uh, being so compromised and he can go on and produce other families. Yeah, that's a that's a very awful kind of true logic. And so you would expect you would expect um, interest in partnership to fluctuate uh, based on some an, an endogenous recognition of that. Yeah, I wonder if um, if different cultures don't have different effectively means about a length of time uh, at which men, to some degree women, but mostly it's going to be men, will tend to yeah. uh, lose interest. You know, and, and it becomes it becomes an excuse, but it's also a, you know a way of understanding um, that relationships dissolve and sort of having it on a background level of expectation with regard to periodicity. Um, might be useful. Yeah, it's at least, you know, you yeah. can say seven-year itch and we all know what you're talking about. So yeah. it, it is useful in that regard. I would also point out, though, we have talked extensively when you and I were on Rogan the first time, we talked about um, the duality, depending upon how you count it, the duality of male reproductive strategies and the fact that women are condemned to one. We also talk about it in our book. Uh, that fact means that the seven-year itch, there's two ways it could play out. One of them is that it's a program that triggers male abandonment of females who have already reproduced with them. Right. The other is that it triggers males who have signed up for a long-term partnership to seek sex elsewhere that they're not going to invest in. That, In mm -hmm. other words, that a female who is constrained by uh, having an offspring who is very needy and does have a parent might tolerate um, be more likely infidelity. to tolerate than before there's a kid. Or, exactly, yeah. she's not going to say, "Well, then the deal is off." So anyway, you could you could see there maybe there are two seven year itches, maybe they're not seven year itches, but you could imagine mm -hmm. that both of those strategies play out and they seem like the same thing because they're both uh, abrogations of of the partnership. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It is said that the body is a shell for the soul. So wouldn't stopping senescence be similar to preventing a seed from reaching its full potential? Parentheses, just a rhetorical. No, I, uh, let's put it this way. No, I don't know what the no is well, in response to. Well, just a rhetorical. It's not just a rhetorical. It's a question and a good one. Okay. Um, yeah. The We have talked in another context about the fact that sex being scarce because women have everything to lose in participating in potentially reproductive sex when they don't have an agreement, when they don't have commitment, is so high that it makes sex scarce and that therefore women are in a very strong negotiating position to nail down a partnership with men who have the characteristics that make them worthy of partnership. That creates a logic 
to the way life works. It's not a fair logic. It puts men and women in very different situations in terms of what they're in a position to accomplish. And in many ways, birth control freed us from much of the asymmetry because women are in much more control of their uh, reproductive status. However, it removed the fundamental logic of the way civilization works. And it's not that that logic was fair and tolerable. Maybe it wasn't. The problem is what we did was removed the logic without replacing it with an equally robust logic of some other kind. And this in the same way, if death... So this being about the body as a shell for the soul, so wouldn't stopping senescence be similar to preventing a seed from reaching its full potential? Is analogous in the sense of, yes, you have a... Everything about you philosophically would be altered if you stood a chance of living 500 years. Mm-hmm. And frankly, the... Uh, the folks who study yep. this stuff, including people who I consider dishonest, like Aubrey de Grey, mm-hmm. always point to the fact, the true calculation, that if you were to eliminate senescence, I think the calculation is 90% of us would live to 150% of us would live to 1,200 years of age or something like that. Everyone else would die of accidents. Right. Everybody dies of something eventually, yep. but yep. your lifespan would be so thoroughly extended that the way you viewed your time would be radically altered. You just wouldn't prioritize the same things at all. And so, and it's worst, worst case is it's not like, well, you have a 50% chance of living to 1200 years. Now schedule your time. It's like, well, we don't know. We might be on the verge of curing aging, in which case 1200 years is a possibility, except you've already lived however many years in the old regime. So, is 500 years a possibility, but for your kids, 1,200 years will be a possibility? Nobody knows. So the point is you can't budget for that. Oh, but we, oh, but we do. <laughs> right. So, Which is to say no. It's not going to happen. Anyway, and you know, the punchline of the whole story is natural selection already solved the aging problem. And you are the living solution to it. And your finite life is the way this should be organized. It is a very elegant solution to the problem. We patent, you know, in humans, it's almost perfect because most of what you contain, the part of you that is especially you, the cognitive part, is garbagey nonsense. It doesn't need to make it into the future. A tiny amount of what you actually are is special enough that it might be worthy of being around 200 years from now. Well, you can pass on, on the software side, the small part of you that makes a whole lot of sense and your descendants can roll their eyes over the part of you that's goofy and doesn't make any fucking sense. And when it's gone, you know, people might miss it out of nostalgia, but it wasn't like it was an important part of the machinery that made humanity work. So um, that's a good solution. You pass on the tiny part of your software that's really good, and the rest of it becomes, uh, you know, some affectation that you take to the grave with you. And that thing in which that pattern continues to unfold is indefinitely long-lived. I believe the eldest son has a contribution to make. Oh, does he now? Well, at your funeral, I will uh, differentiate between the part of you that I don't miss at all and the part of you that I miss. Well, but here in the... No, no, it's it's three parts. There are the parts of me that you won't miss at all. Uh There are the parts that you will definitely miss. And there are the parts that are goofy and not useful but endearing enough that you will miss them despite yourself well and even worse than that i can 
I can make this worse for you. I can say that I don't miss any part of you because the best part of you is in Toby and I. Yep. And yes. so we really don't need to. We can oh, get I, I, I got you. I got bad news for you, my friend. You are going to discover that many of the goofy parts have been passed on. Oh, don't too. worry. I have so. plenty of that, and too. But some of the parts that you wish you hadn't passed on, presumably. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Dude, I am, I am absolutely. none of the bad parts. I'm perfect. Mm. Yep. <laughs> we hadn't noticed. <laughs> Had yet to notice. Anyway, so yeah, That's you are the living question. embodiment of the solution, <clears throat> and yes, philosophy would be turned on its freaking head yeah. if we were all freed from this thing, and even worse if some tiny fraction of us was. Yeah. So, enjoy it while you got it. Um, I have an elderly friend born in 1943 who was one of nine boys. Is it a coincidence when a mother bears all sons or all daughters? Sometimes, but we expect that to be rare. And um, there is some evolutionary theory uh, that predicts under what conditions uh, males or females uh, might be more likely to be born, the so-called Trivers-Willard hypothesis, uh, that suggests that because of the greater variance in reproductive success in males, and this should hold across all organisms, um, although there has been some research of this done anthropologically in humans, given the great ver greater variance in reproductive success in males than in females, uh, that parents in um, better condition, whatever that might mean for the particular situation in which they find themselves in, environment, culture, time, etc., um, uh, should uh, be benefited by producing males uh, rather than females uh, because a uh, higher quality male is more likely to outstrip the mean uh, reproductive success that he would otherwise obtain, whereas um, whereas females are almost guaranteed to reproduce either way. Uh, reproduce either way and not at extraordinary numbers. So right. um, to, to put that in simpler terms, a really successful male might produce 30 offspring in a lifetime, an evolutionarily really successful uh, male and a female really successful as she may be is very unlikely to. There's a couple of exceptional cases, but um, but so there are two parts to the answer to this question. One, the unusual bias in sex ratio would be observed sometimes without any selection at all and you can calculate exactly how often by random you ought to see somebody, you know, who had five boys or five girls in yep. a row. Mm -hmm. The Trivers-Willard argument is that actually the individual is in some position to control what sex they produce and in some position to know something about the positioning in the world of the offspring that they will produce. And there may be an adjustment that changes it from the random expectation. But the thing I would caution you about is that even a random coin flip will produce unusual sequences of heads, right? unusual sequences of tails. And if you happen to catch an unusual sequence, it will feel like something must have happened here. Why does that person have all girls? Right. Um, sometimes it just happens. Yeah. Sometimes it just happens. And you would, if it didn't, that would be evidence of somebody tinkering to make the world look more random yes. than random that would be your evidence of god right there yeah yeah is the animal body a rube goldberg machine rube goldberg's was that's a good answer maybe that's all we need to do <laughs> i guess i'd have to be reminded of exactly what 
what is meant when people say Rube Goldberg machine? So a Rube Goldberg machine. So Rube Goldberg was a dude. Yes. Um, and he put together <laughs> these machines that did something mundane, like toast a piece of bread. But they were extreme. They were yeah. They had would, all these epicycles. You would right? uh, he yeah. would sit at the table and he would flick a ball that would roll down a ramp and it would uh, so like and we see things like this in like Wallace and Gromit actually right. the Winter Gatan uh, uh, machine that the theme music I would say that's not yeah not, I would say it's not but not, it definitely it, it seems like it could be it it, it, ha it has an analogy extra to it levers and such? nope it, it's it doesn't a, it's, okay. okay okay but. People have taken the Rube Goldberg idea to a level of high art at yeah. long after Rube Goldberg was had died. And so if you look now online, you will find incredible versions of these things. Yeah. It's Going through gardens and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing. And I think it's really good for the mind. Okay, to, but so in, in terms of encapsulating what it is, yep. it's um, there is a goal. The goal could be accomplished simply. This is this is a machine that accomplishes that goal in an incredibly roundabout and complicated way. Is is that the encapsulation? Yes. And there is one. This answer would yes, that's the encapsulation. <laughs> it's impossible to answer the question if we don't if we don't have a yes. definition of what the thing is. Yes, an arbitrarily complex way of solving a simple puzzle. Okay. Um, well, does it need to be arbitrary? I don't see. Now, see, you've just added another word. I I don't think I, I don't I think no. The whole body the is not is, it's one way. It's like you put in an input and it creates an output, which is inherently different from anything like a human or the yeah, but, machine. Or so that, like that this is why I needed to get to the next part. Okay. There is a famous statement. Um, Dawkins has certainly given voice to it. I don't think it comes from him originally, though. And the statement is one that you really have to understand if you want to work out and understand selection more completely. The statement is, a chicken is an egg's way of making another egg. Right? A chicken is a very elaborate mechanism. And the idea that the chicken is not an important part of any puzzle other than it is necessary in order to get chicken genomes into the future. If the chicken genome could go there more directly without producing a chicken, it would. But that there it is then. So that would seem to say, oh, well, then a chicken is a Rube Goldberg machine, except that we have no evidence that there is a simpler way. Yeah, I guess that's the one distinction I would draw. But the idea... At least from chicken egg to chicken egg. So... Egg to egg, there are other ways. But... Speaking of deep philosophical puzzles that rest on things being the way they are and not some other way. All of the good stuff, all of the amazingly special stuff that human beings are, is of exactly this nature. Selection has gone through a absolutely complex way of accomplishing the exact same goal that a an alga does in its much simpler fashion, for no other purpose. Mm -hmm. But in creating a creature that has the capacity to evaluate, to ponder, to hypothesize, to, to, music. to make music, to be compassionate, to, to moon. partner, all of the things that human beings do. That's the special stuff. Mm -hmm. The fact that we're doing the same thing that an alga does or a cricket does or any of these other things is irrelevant. Well, and it tells you, and this is something you've said and we've said many, many times, that um, focusing on what evolution wants us to do is banal. 
not and, only banal, it's insane. It's an insane, and like, I mean, why, why, why would you do that? That yeah. that is the source of the idea that selection um, turns the universe into a cosmic spelling bee that ends in genocide. Because ultimately, if you're trying to spread your genes, eliminating people who have different genes is a sensible thing to do. And so, GCCA to the death. <laughs> right. <laughs> so once you realize, hey, everything I give a damn about is over on the means to an end side as far as evolution is concerned. And the end is so mind-numbingly stupid that no rational person could possibly honor it. Right. Once you realize the spelling that, of your genes. Yeah, know, the spelling you of your genes. Yeah. Right. So, you know, look, when... Uh, when uh, whatever the new version of Nazism is that's rising and it starts eyeing Jews as if Jews are the obstacle to human flourishing or something like this, it is enacting an ancient program that is focused in on exactly what selection wants you doing and it is ignoring what human beings are capable of that selection didn't mean to make us capable of. Mm -hmm. And so that's really the point. It's like, hey, how about we all gang up on evolution right now and decide not to prioritize genetic spellings that no none of us know or should give a shit about. And let's team up on doing all of the cool stuff that human beings are uniquely capable of doing instead. Wouldn't that be cool, right? Yes. So anyway, uh, good question and a, and a deep one and with profound philosophical implications. But yes and no, we are a Rube Goldberg machine, except in that as Heather points out, it is not clear that there is a simple way to do it. Yeah. There are simpler ways, but there's no, there's nothing that you wouldn't call a Rube Goldberg machine doing that thing. Nothing is so simple that it is not a Rube Goldberg machine putting its genes into the future. It's just that we're some of the most elaborate Rube Goldberg machines. Okay. Um, gosh, we got a lot of really cool questions here. Um, we got some baby questions. Three baby questions-ish. Like, hey, baby questions? Um, no. Um, actually, the second one isn't actually a baby question, but it follows from the first one, so I'm going to take it as it. When is it appropriate to allow a baby to self-soothe? So this follows for, we answered a question like this um, last week or somewhere, sometime. Um, when is it appropriate to allow a baby to self-soothe? My six-month-old is waking every three hours. Um, and I think... I don't remember. Did we did we have that discussion on the private Q and A? Maybe or no? I think it was on the on the on the public Q and A. You know, I think I think the answer for a six month old that is, who is waking every three hours um, is that if your six month old is sleeping next to you when when he or she wakes, um, if as is likely what he wants is is nourishment. Um, then it's easy to give to him, and um, it's yes, you do wake up a little bit, but it's not it's not that much. Um, and uh, you know, I'm sure that we were lucky, um, but I also do not remember. And our two boys were quite different. Uh, one of them was um, fussier than the other by a fair bit, um, uh, but I just don't remember the early days being particularly sleepless with either of them. And, um, and I think, you know, some of that certainly is going to have been, been luck and genetics and whatever, but I think a lot of that really was about, uh, the, the baby's sleeping 
sleeping next to us and specifically next to me and um, having, you know, skin on skin contact whenever it was that they wanted it and um, being able to feed whenever they wanted to. Even, you know, six months, you're probably, you know, moving into solid foods and such. But um, and there are certainly some cultures that are weaning at that point. Um, but uh, unless you have to, um, you know, let let the let the baby wean wean himself or herself when when they choose and um i suspect um unless there's something else going on that that that, that will um help and I, you know I, whenever whenever i get questions like this I, I feel a little bad um because it feels like i'm being um critical of whatever you're doing i have no idea what you're doing and i don't know what your situation is um but i do think that we have been you know <laughs> along with so many other lies we've just been fed so much bullshit around how it is that we're supposed to interact with our babies and um and uh the idea that the quote-unquote family bed which is the new language for um sleeping in the same space as your baby um the idea that the family bed is itself dangerous no that's that's the opposite that that is the opposite uh and you know a, a baby who knows for sure that um, his needs, her needs get attended to, um, quickly becomes a toddler and then a child and then a young adult who can go out into the world and fix things for themselves and solve their own problems. Um, that said, uh, yes, they do have to learn to self-soothe at some point, but I kind of think six months is a little young, but again, I don't know your situation. Yeah. Uh my instinct is also six months is a little young, but it doesn't mean zero either. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, you know, to the extent, let's put it this way. You probably know better than we will, whether your child is securely attached. If your child is secure, if your child is not securely attached, then you've got bigger issues and addressing them so that you can recover that attachment quickly would be top priority. I would say. But assuming your child is securely attached, and probably if you're asking this question, they are because you're thinking deeply about their needs and, and all of that. If that's true, then here's the key thing to know. You and your baby are both wired for you to solve this question, for you to figure out the answer. And your sense that the baby needs you is a guide and your sense that the baby needs to get past this is also a guide and you will be as you experiment a babies are very fault tolerant if you give them a high signal to noise ratio then your errors which are noise will be drowned out by the signal so the fact that you make an error on some day and you don't soothe the child when you should have is not going to change anything significant if you do that chronically it will yeah but um, as you, you should experiment a little bit and you should figure out whether the pattern is that the baby is anxious for a brief time and then does soothe itself or that you stare down the baby crying, uh, once and it learns the skill and the next time it's half as insistent and the time after that it's half as insistent. You have to spot those patterns and to the extent that you feel like you're doing something wrong, you probably are. Um, to the extent that you feel like, no, I have the sense that if I um, just simply do allow the child to cry it out this time, that they will learn a valuable lesson that whatever they're feeling isn't the end of the world, that might be right. So anyway, I would say experiment, but do not ignore your sense 
that the baby needs you and you'll be all right. That's that's the safety rail. Okay. I'm going to pull in some Trivers. Oh, goodness. I, I pulled up um, Trivers 1974. So Trivers is... You know, one of one of the world's <clears throat> best evolutionary biologists. He was also our undergraduate advisor, um, and uh, he published uh, three or four, five um, incredibly important theoretical papers in the seventies. One of which was uh, this one. You can show my screen, <clears throat> Zach. Uh, this is uh, published in American Zoologist, I think. Zoologist, I think, is what the name of that journal was. Called simply parent-offspring conflict. And um, the whole thing is important, um, but let me just read this paragraph under the heading Parent-Offspring Conflict Over the Continuation of Parental Investment. This is about caribou, um, but uh, it applies here. Consider a newborn male caribou calf nursing from his mother. The benefit to him of nursing, measured in terms of his chance of surviving, is large. The cost to his mother, measured in terms of her ability to produce additional offspring, presumably small. As time goes on and the calf becomes increasingly capable of feeding on his own, the benefit to him of nursing decreases while the cost to his mother may increase, as a function, for example, of the calf's size. Older babies need more food, it's more expensive to feed them, etc. More expensive at a metabolic level. If cost and benefit are measured in the same units, then at some point the cost of the mother will exceed the benefit to her young and the net reproductive success of the mother decreases if she continues to nurse. Note that later-born offspring may contribute less to the mother's eventual RS, reproductive success, than early-born because their reproductive value may be lower, etc., etc. The calf is not expected, so to speak, to view this situation as does his mother. For the calf is completely related to himself, but only partially related to his future siblings, so that he is expected to devalue the cost of nursing by his, and then he goes into some mathematical analysis. Point is, and you can take my screen off if you want, um, that it is also true that you and your baby are not the same beings and that there is a difference uh, in opinion between the two of you that will grow uh, over time about how it is that you should spend your time and resources. And so the fact of you being perhaps driven to distraction by a baby that is waking up every three hours um, may be um, a sign of, okay, maybe it's like, I, I do need to start pushing this back. This isn't like, this isn't working. But if some part of you is, is in the back of your head, as Brett said, saying, ah, seems young. Um, maybe he really needs something and maybe what he needs, the baby, um, is to know that I am here. And a six month old human is going to be a much more successful and productive and well-adjusted and happy human later on. If he's a six-month-old, he knows that someone is there for him. Um, that's true for a five-year-old too, but you're going to leave a five-year-old alone some. And it's true for a 10-year-old and it's true for a 15-year-old. Uh, but at each of those stages, uh, you expect the time between um, you know, close physical contact to be greater and the need for immediate um, you know, coming back into contact when there's been a separation to be less. And it's not that the love is any less, but the need is less. And the con the potential conflict between parent and offspring um, do grow just as sort of a measure of what the different, um, what, uh, how the benefits and costs of the interaction um, are changing over time. All right, I'll add one more thing. Mm -hmm. uh, it is very important. Let's imagine that you, that, about experimenting with the child's ability to self-soothe. And the child gets increasingly agitated the longer you leave it 
and you stare it down. And then at some point you feel like the experiment isn't working and you go and check on it. Well, you've now created the impression that it was the higher decibel level that got your attention. And so you have to break that pattern. Mm. And one needs to be very careful. Your interests are very largely overlapping with your offspring. Parents that don't get that are a problem. But you can, in that moment when the child is unusually um, comfortable alone, you can take that moment to go and reassure the child so that the child gets the idea of, oh, when I don't scream, they're attentive. When I do scream, they're less attentive, right? If you can make that pattern evident enough, then mm -hmm. the child will pick up on it. And the way to get what they want is actually to behave in a way that's good for you both. Yeah. And that's, you know. This and is... use the screaming only for actually, I really, really, really need right. help right then now. Then when the child screams, then you'll know it actually means something. Yeah. Um, so this, this is the key for, I would say, training animals, and it is the key for raising children, is understanding that it's no single instance makes the difference. But the ability to generate a pattern that overwhelms the noise that the child can detect that results in the child becoming more capable, more secure, more sensitive to the well-being of others, whatever it is that should be built into the adult the child is going to become, you want the pattern that gets there to be so evident that the child can see it. And, you know, as the child gets older and more sophisticated, the subtlety of the pattern can grow. Um, at the beginning, the pattern has to be pretty darn obvious for the child to, to spot it. Yeah. Cool. Um, next question, not about babies, but it's about crying. Um, <clears throat> Might crying have evolved from a reaction to clear nasal infections? The bad feeling of being sick being then extended to broader situations. Mm. Yep, I would say that has, uh, this is obviously building on the question we answered recently about what the hell is crying, and I, yeah. I hypothesized that, um, that actually in the case of a child, flushing the eyes is a good idea if there's distress, because in the case that there's something in the eye that's very destructive, um, so it's worth the small expense of tears, and then those things get borrowed as an indicator of mental state, and so they persist into adulthood. Uh, in this case, this is another version where there's something yep. that could be... So what, what remains to be known is whether or not crying has a positive influence on the some set of nasal infections. Um, right. You know, I would want to yep. know that. But if it did, then yeah, that's a very, very good hypothesis. I agree. Um, eat and breathe from throat. Why did evolution allow for the possibility of choking? Yeah, we're we're just we're, we do not make sense in this regard, and of course we do make sense. It's a it's a question of historical constraint. It's yeah. a question of a slow incremental changes from a state uh, that was far less susceptible to choking. And at the point that you get to something that is functional in the, in this bipedal human, um, <clears throat> there's no undoing it without undoing everything and starting from scratch. It's it's akin to why are vertebrate eyes backwards? Our eyes are just not nearly as efficient as the eyes of cephalopods, of octopus and squid. But to get there from here, we'd have to go through having no eyes at all, and selection can't do that for us. Uh, so the... Um, yeah, this, this situation is, is not optimal. No one ever said it was. Evolution does not tend to produce optimal. 
it tends to do uh, the best with what is available and uh, those starting conditions uh, can be uh, can be ugly yeah. yeah yeah it's it's bad design due to constraint I, I agree with that completely yeah um, doctor says iron deficiency is common in babies could this be adaptive or protective I want to know before you say anything um, so I haven't heard this and I want to know what iron deficiency means because um, having lower levels of iron per what uh, volume of blood than adults have is an actual uh, quantitative measure. Calling that deficiency already puts a label on it that says, and that's out of order, and therefore we need to bring what babies have up to the level of adults. And why would we expect babies to have exactly the same blood as adults? So, and I, I assume this is about iron and blood, um, like in the in the heme and such. Uh, so I guess I object, I object to, and this is not the person asking the question, but the doctor and the whole medical system, of course, um, using terms like deficiency when they find something that is lower than what they were expecting, but on what basis were they expecting it? And if they weren't, if they were expecting it based on really bad assumptions, then I'm sorry, you can say babies have lower iron in their blood than adults do. And in some cases, um, we then see evidence of, say, anemia. And uh, we think that needs to be corrected. But if all babies have lower levels of iron in their blood, that's not iron deficiency. That, if it's a universal condition, that's not a deficiency. Especially, um, and I, I admit I know more about this topic oh. than I would otherwise know because Steve Patterson has been looking into so-called iron deficiency. I shouldn't have talked. No, you, you, <laughs> okay. you, you did very well. Right. In light I, of I had no idea you would Steve talk. Okay. Has found. Um, but anyway, I will not, uh, I'm not going to present a version of it. I've only just heard the, the bare bones. But the question is whether medicine in general has understood mm. iron incorrectly and that we are massively supplementing it across the board where that is not warranted and has negative downsides, which yes. I would point out yes. if we are doing that, Let's say that we are supplementing adults to a point of ill health, and oh, adults that are, couldn't possibly be the case. And adults are filtering iron out because they are delivering to a baby. If the mother is filtering so that the baby gets the correct amount of iron, you would expect a difference between breastfed babies and yeah. uh, and um, formula filled yeah. fed babies. So anyway, if you found that, that would be a strong indicator that actually adults are over supplemented on iron, and that what we're calling a deficiency in children yeah. isn't one, except in so far as somebody would like to sell iron to people who have children so many rackets it's rackets all the way down <laughs> it's rackets all the way down yeah um topics for your physician so i don't know what this means topics for your physician guests one maintenance of certification two moral injury i guess maybe that's related to um the uh Maintenance of certification is related to the continuing medical education yeah. uh, credits that I was talking about in the last hour. Uh, moral injury. Um, yeah, yeah I, I mean, I think I, I any physician it. guests that you have on um, are are going to be clued into this. Yeah, I'm thinking. Um, but I, I mean, although everyone's got to get these continuing ed education credits, I think, um, to maintain good standing it, in their board, or I, I don't know. I think. Why we put out that lie to a tyrant, uh, March. Yeah. This is exactly the thing. You have to get your damn credits. Yeah. 
then no i got an hour of of uh certified medical education credits for that and the fact is i did spend an hour reading the paper and everything but i could have read the outline yeah and taken the quiz in like three minutes yeah so that was my hour <laughs> right um i like the idea of moral injury yeah if you have doctors say oh yeah there's nothing wrong with that um, then you get focused on what medicine can do for you rather than getting over stuff that you should get over. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure it's exactly moral injury all the time, but there's definitely yeah. um, being misled into a belief that you are something you aren't, and that has all sorts of consequences, which are important. Yeah. Okay, let's do, uh, let's do three more questions here. Each of them, I think, could be kind of giant um although one of them may be just rhetorical um let's start with the rhetorical one coordinated ruling class attack on reason or collective insanity man equals woman two plus two equals five corrupting fundamental truth well-funded and coordinated i don't know that you have to choose between those i mean honestly i'd like to can i choose um can, can i take one you have a population that is primed for yeah. collective insanity it's been pruned away from ancient stuff that was organizing in nature. So let's say religion, uh, or let's say the scarcity of sex from the absence of birth control. These things are gone. That leaves people free to choose to think wrong stuff and get away with it. And so anyway, you've got, you've got a, a landscape that is ripe for bad thoughts to spread across it. And you have enemies who maybe don't want you thinking so clearly and aren't so hot on the idea of educating their children's competitors well. And uh, so anyway, I, I think the problem is that people will find evidence of intentional disruption and they will say, that's it. That's why we've gone mad. And the answer is that's part of why we've gone mad, but the landscape in which that was possible is an equal contributor, in my opinion. Yeah. How do we account for evidence of humans before we were supposed to exist? I don't know what evidence is being referred to. Yeah. I don't either. Yeah. Uh, so we'll need to hear what that evidence is. What three burning questions would you ask God or another ultimate authority? Uh, WTAF would be high on my list. Um, no, what did I, um, I, it's hard for people who don't think in terms of an ultimate authority. I think I'll, I'll just speak for myself, but um, I saw that question before I read it to you. Um, so I had a couple more minutes to think about it, but I think, I think it's very hard for people who don't think in those terms to imagine what that world would be where there was someone to ask. Uh, there are things that, um, you know, that I'm interested in knowing for sure, but I think a world in which um, in which there was an ultimate authority who was askable, or even one who wasn't askable, um, would be such a different world that the questions would inherently be different. I think. Well, 
so here's how here's how I solve the problem of not believing that there is such an authority and therefore not having the right mindset. It is possible. I admit that it is possible that we are inside a simulation. I find it very unlikely, but possible that mm-hmm. this could be the product of a simulation and that it would have all of the characteristics that we have, our subjective experience of the universe and Either we all have a subjective experience which is inside the simulator or it would have to be just me otherwise. Um, and the rest of you are, you know, there for whatever auxiliary purpose. Again, I think this is super unlikely to be right, either of those. But um, if I discovered, if I suddenly was in an interview room and the programmer of the simulator was there, right, what would I ask? I would ask. Okay. Okay, okay. good. I'm not sure I have three, but I've got two. One is, what were you trying to accomplish? What was the simulator for? Oh, yeah. I want to know what it was for. But again, that doesn't make sense in the world that you and I understand ourselves to live in. Right. That's not a question. If there, if there right. was the equivalent of a god who had yeah, done this yeah. intentionally, what was your intent? What was that right. for? Were you trying to see if the evolutionary tape runs the same way multiple times? Were you looking into the souls of people that you had created really to see curious. how they would solve yeah. moral conundrums? What, what was yeah. it? What was it for? Good. Um, that's one. Mm-hmm. Um, the other would be how does free will work? How is this not a completely deterministic system? Mm. How did you get that in there? Show because me I your do code, believe, man. I do believe it's <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah. But I don't know how it's there. And I know I have to go somewhere over to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle yeah, and imagine that something and, there yeah. propagates up through the whole system and means that when a uh, lynx chases a rabbit, the outcome is uncertain. Um, I want to know those two things. What was it for? And how did how did it would be uninteresting if the entire thing was deterministic from the beginning? So surely it wasn't. Yeah. How did you get the thing not to be deterministic? Yeah. Oh, that's good. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to add to that. That's oh, and the third one is W T A F. Oh, right. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And you'd talk that way to God. You'd use that language. Oh, I don't think you he would. would respect me if I didn't. Yes, he would. No, he built this fucking thing, and the fact that I feel like that's the way to talk to the guy, that I have a strong sense that that's the right. Uh, that kind of argument does get a person out of a lot of scrapes with God, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean. <laughs> If you hadn't wanted me to do this, you wouldn't have built the capacity for me to do this. Yeah, that's well, it cheating. reminds that me of a joke cheating. that my father used to tell. Okay. Um, oh, good. A, uh, Happy birthday lesson. Chi- yeah, indeed, if you're watching. <laughs> um, a child is guilty of some absolutely heinous crime, and um, his father goes to the, the prison to, to talk to him, and he says, how could you end up this way? And the child says, some combination of heredity and environment. <laughs> Pretty good joke. Yep. And your father told you this joke. He did tell yeah. me that joke. Okay. Yeah. And wonders why you became a biologist. I don't know what he wonders, but no. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yep. Um, yeah, that's 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 good. Um, awesome. I think we're there. Uh, we'll be back in a week. We'll be back in a week uh, with another live stream. Uh, Check out Natural Selections. Check out our locals. um, Check out our locals and subscribe on Rumble and share what we've got that you like. Um, Share what we've got that you you don't like and see what other people think. Share and share alike. Share and share a liked. Never mind. 
Never mind, apparently. Yes, never mind. Until we see you next time. Be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. Be well, everyone. <laughs>